If you have your Bible, if you turn with me to the book of Psalms. Today we're beginning a brand new series entitled Life of Worship. You know, what does worship look like? What does true worship look like? I think if you were to quiz the man on the street, if you were to go and ask random people what they thought were, you know, that is the best way to get accurate information. <laughs> is if you just go ask random people, and if you ask them what they thought worship is, you might get a bunch of different answers. Some would restrict worship to the music part. So we did worship, and now we're doing preaching. I've heard that before. Um, some people would say that worship is a genre of music. You know, back when they had music stores, you could go to a music store and they might have a worship section of music. Um, or perhaps even some would consider it an event. We get calls here at the church sometimes, uh, people trying to get us, and normally it's the youth. We want your youth to be involved in a worship event at some venue. There's going to be these people here. They're stars. You'll want to be there. And everyone will come and it will be a worship Event, But worship is much more than just what happens in public service in front of everybody. In fact, worship, essentially, the most, one of the most important parts of worship is what happens in our heart. What happens in your heart before God. I've been thinking a lot about worship recently, especially in light of the past year. We've been thinking about, or I've been just pondering, what counts as worship? That's a big question. What kind of worship honors the Lord, and is there a kind of worship that is unacceptable to God versus what is acceptable to God? What exactly happens when we worship? How does worship change us as people? How does it usher us into the presence of God? Does it do something special like that? How does worship align our thoughts with God's thoughts? How does it help us transcend the evil of this world and the temporariness of this world. We're not going to answer all those questions today, but it gets us started in thinking about this life of worship, and I wanted us to go into the book of Psalms and see what God's Word has to say, because worship isn't something we do just once a week. Worship is a gift from God, really. It's a gift that allows us to a special opportunity to declare the worth of God. We worship Him. We show His worth, and it reminds us of who we are and who he is. In fact, sometimes when we're worshiping, it even reveals in our hearts we actually have been worshiping something else. It shows us that we have an idol in our heart, something that's sitting on the throne that God owns. And God is an exclusive God. He does not share his throne with anyone. And when we worship, we must recognize that we need to worship God alone, and we need to develop a life of worship. Worship should flow out of us. It should be the kind of thing that when, they, when someone pokes you, worship should just come out. You know, because worship is, is more than just when things are good. When, worship go, when things go bad, we also ought to worship. Worship ought to be part of our life. It ought to be everything that we do. We, almost like we couldn't help but worship God because of how great he is. Before we go any further, let's ask God to bless this time we have together this morning. Father, we do ask for your mercy and grace and for your wisdom. As we look into your hymn book, your worship book, the book of Psalms, Lord, may our hearts be tender to our own failings and faults. Lord, may we be convicted by your Spirit to show us where we need to change today that we might take that next spiritual step, whatever it might be. As we walk along this path, Lord, may we have a life that reflects worship of the one true God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here at Harvest, we have a hymn book. You notice we have the little blue book that you sing from, and, and the Bible 
has a hymn book too. In fact, the book of Psalms, if you're open there, if you don't know where Psalms is, open the middle of your Bible, you're probably going to be close. And in the Psalms, we have the hymn book of the Jewish people. It's a song of worship, a song, a, a, a book of worship, a book about worship. It's foundational to help us understand what worship is. And over the next several weeks, we'll be exploring this life of worship. We're going to be preparing our hearts for worship and actually engaging in worship. But the amazing thing about the Bible, especially the book of Psalms, is full of poetry. Um, did you know the Bible is full of poems? In fact, the whole Bible is just full of of poetry. If you have a modern version and you flip through it, you'll notice, uh, as mine is, that there are a line, there are versified lines in the book of Psalms, and there are some in Job, and this throughout the Bible. As you flip through it, you'll see poem after poem after poem. And, and some of you are, 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 when I say poetry, all the, uh, you start feeling like depression, or you start feeling a burden on your shoulders because you hate poetry. In your mind, poetry is like roses are red, violets are blue, the honey is sweet, and so are you. Like that, that's like your your thought of poetry is like those little valentines you used to write to your friend in the fourth grade. And and poetry kind of makes you say, oh, come on. But you know, the Bible is full of poetry, and biblical poetry is different than that kind of trite poetry that I just quoted for you there. In fact, one of the most significant differences you'll notice as we talk about poetry, biblical poetry, is that you might say, well, that's poetry because that doesn't rhyme. And biblical poetry does not have sound rhyme like much of our English poetry does. What you'll notice as we study these psalms is that biblical poetry has what I call thought rhyme. A lot of scholars call it parallelism. That is this, this structure of, of, of two lines that say one thing and then maybe expound upon it or, or say the opposite or show a, an alternative to that. And this is how the Bible poetry is written. When we read our biblical poetry, we notice a, a, a climactic parallelism here. And there's a lot of structured beauty and unity behind these psalms that as you start to study them and you really develop what is happening in the text, it becomes very beautiful. And God has done this to stir our hearts. God is a God of beauty. And he loves to do these things to show us that he doesn't just give us truth in in a pill form. He doesn't say, here are the the lists of propositional truths you must know for the rest of your life. And he gives them to us alphabetically. That's not how God has given us the Bible. The Bible is given to us in stories that warm our hearts and challenge us. And in poetry that really exalts the language of speaking of worship about God. That's why we sing songs to God like we do. In fact, the Bible has a lot of variety in it as well. The the Psalms in the Bible are full of variety. We have wisdom Psalms, like the one we are going to read this morning in like Psalm 37 and Psalm 73 that acknowledge the difficulty of living in a fallen world, but living by God's law. We have prophetic Psalms like Psalm 2 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 22, Psalm 110 that speak about God's exalted Messiah and this Messiah who would come. And these are quoted often in the New Testament. We have worship Psalms. Psalms that, towards, most of them towards the back of your Bible, many of them called songs of ascents, where people would sing these songs as they climb towards Jerusalem, and a repeated phrase, and there's hallelujah, hallelujah, which means let us praise the Lord. You have songs of laments, and laments are, are, are sad songs, songs that grieve. A lot of us have had grief. And you know that it, there's nothing like when, you, when you're going through a time of grieving and you read something who, someone who's been there before. In fact, the whole book of Lamentations is a song that's a lament for Jerusalem that had fallen. We have in precatory psalms, psalms that are all about God's judgment against the wicked people. Some of those might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, 
but yet it shows God's justice. God's justice is true on those who reject him. We come to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 really acts like an introduction to the entire book of Psalms. In many respects, it gives us a, a, a way to read and a way to understand and a way to approach the worship of God. And that's why we're going to focus in on this psalm as we get started, because he introduces the life of someone who's going to worship the Lord and the benefits of being one of God's worshipers. Would you look with me in Psalm 1? We're going to read the first three verses as we begin. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. The first image this psalm gives us is the, in the blessed life of worship is the secure life of the blessed person. The first word here is blessed. He's talking here about living a happy and fulfilled life. Being a complete person is actually within reach for the Christian. You can be a happy and blessed person, something that people are searching for. Jesus, even when he does the Beatitudes, blessed are those, blessed are they, blessed are they. This is the same kind of construction that Jesus uses in his Sermon on the Mount here, opens up our book of worship. Blessed is the man. And that first word begins with the Hebrew letter Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In fact, Pastor Drew, I was talking to him about this this week, his son Asher, his name means blessed. And that's this word here, blessed, Asher. It means blessed is the one. And in speaking of blessed here, in fact, if you look at the very last word in this psalm, the word perish, that word begins with the letter Tau, and that in Hebrew is the very last letter. In a sense, he's beginning his psalm with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, ending it with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, telling us this is, as you could see, an A to Z of human living. He's doing that intentionally and with beauty. And one of the truths right at the beginning is that God does not bless everyone. This is a harsh truth, but something we have to wrap our minds around. And in fact, blessed is the man who walks not. That means there are some people who will not receive God's blessing. God's blessings will only come on those who follow God's way. So let's focus on the primary goal here. How do we live out this fulfilled life? There is an emphasis here, not on the political, but rather on the personal and the inner man. Let's look at the inner man, the secure life of this inner man. Number one, we see the blessed man avoids the influence of the wicked. Blessed is the man You experience favor in your life, but notice the opponents of this blessed man. He is severely outnumbered. He walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. He does not stand in the path of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of scornful. That's three. Three different people at least versus the one. He's outnumbered. Further, each one of these words is a plural, meaning there are multitudes of each of these. So it's not three on one. It's more like 300 on one. Because each multitude is opposed to this blessed, godly man. So here, notice, he is severely outnumbered. And, he, and notice also that he will be known not necessarily initially for what he does, but for what he does not do. It says, blessed is the man who walks not 
in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the seat on the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. There's a lot of people today who I hear say things like, Christians are so negative. I want people to know what I'm for, not just what I'm against. Have you ever heard people say something like that? I understand the mentality behind that, but you'll notice if you're going to follow the Lord, you will need to clearly be opposed to certain things. In fact, Christians should first be known for what we stand opposed to, and you should be blessed if you stand opposed to those who are the ungodly, the sinners, and the scornful. Specifically, notice if you avoid the influence of these wicked people. Look at what it says. The, you are to not walk. The word walk there is a metaphor talking about how you live. You are not to live, walk in the counsel or literally the advice of the wicked. Neither are you to walk in the path or stand in the road. The path means the, the, li- the, uh, the lifestyle, the decisions of the ungodly. You're not to sit. That is the dwelling place of the scorner. Notice that how we orient our lives around how we're being taught is so important. In fact, so many of us today, Christians, have oriented how we think about the world. We see the world through the filter presented to us from television, internet, medias, and from a friend, from our friends all around us. We, we see the world through that lens, and we, in fact, have taken counsel. We are walking the road, and we are sitting in the seat of those who are foolish and who object or who are opposed to God. I, I don't know if you notice this in your life, but if you let your children watch and consume media without discernment, you should not be surprised when they have listened to the counsel of the ungodly, they have stood in in the way of sinners and sat in the seat of the scornful because they have found themselves at home among those people. We must be careful. We must avoid the influence of the wicked. And not just kids. The same applies to grown-ups too. In fact, we are easily deceived and easily our hearts are turned away from the things of the Lord into the things of evil. Do you have the strength not only to promote what is right, but friend, do you have the strength to stand up against what is wrong? It's hard sometimes to say no. It's hard to say I'm not going to allow that to influence my life. But where should you find the strength to say no? Where could you find the strength to say no to that? Well, you can find that strength when you value, secondly, God's word. Notice the second verse. He says, but contrasting with the previous, rather than finding his influence in the world, rather than finding his counsel in the world, this man finds his delight in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates or ponders or thinks or dwells on it day and night. I think it's fascinating that your inner person matters. Who you are on the inside matters a lot. What do you think about? What do you dwell about? Your thoughts, your joys. Notice here, your loves and your passions should be in the things of God. What lights you? What lights your eyes up? One of our kids, one of our children, absolutely loves doing crafts. I mean, anything crafty, boom. It's like her eyes light up. In fact, if I get a box in the mail, I unpack my thing from the, mail, from the box, and you know what happens to that box, right? It gets turned into a craft. It, becomes, it gets turned into a diorama. I mean, it's opened up, and there is like, there's a couch and a chair and a place for her dolls. And there's, and, the, and they'll, they'll grab a, I oh know, don't, don't judge me. They'll grab a kitchen knife and cut a hole in it and create a window. 
And then there's like all this amazing stuff that happens. And, and when she's not looking, you have to get rid of it or else we'd have 50 or 60 of these things lying around the house. Those things, that really, really is what stirs her heart. There's something about that that just absolutely lights up her eyes. Friend, does the God's word light up your eyes? Like when you, when you have, when I say to you devotions, do, do you say, oh, burden, to get up in the morning and to have a cup of coffee and to try to pry my eyes awake so I can read the Bible? Or are you so excited? Do, are your delight in God's way of doing things? Do you delight in the ways of God? The blessed man avoids the wicked and also delights or values in God's word. But it's more than just having your delight, your emotional joy in the law of God. It also means you think about God's words. You meditate on, you are focusing on, you're meditating on his law. Like when you are not doing something, you find yourself thinking about God. What do you find yourself thinking about? Have you ever gotten lost in thinking about the greatness and beauty of God? You're standing in line at the DMV. You could be thinking about a hundred things, most of them wicked. Why don't you think about something good? (laughs) Think about God. Meditate. Take advantage of those times when you have nothing to think about, to ponder and meditate on the greatness and goodness of God, to meditate on the scripture and on the law of God and on the words of God. Law means more than just the first five books. He's talking about the way God does things, God's way of living. And when you are thinking about God's word, it also means not only are you meditating on it, you're also submissive to God's truth. That is what really is important, is that you align yourself under God and his word. Worship that is true worship is always word-centered and God-oriented. We are not here to worship people. We want worship that exalts God and exalts the word of God primarily, that is bathed in the words of God, and that is exalting him. I, I love that we have beautiful music here, but frankly, at Harvest, our music hasn't always been beautiful. There were days Back in the old days, I'm talking a long time ago, when, you know, we did what we could. In fact, I've been um, taking old sermon tapes and transferring them on the digital back from the ages, back from like 98, 99, 2000. And I've, I've, I've been doing this at my house just when I have time. And it's funny because they would let the tape roll sometimes before the service started. And there were a couple of choir specials on the tapes. And I was listening to this morning and I thought, the Lord is so good. But you know what? Even if, I mean, let me finish my thought. The Lord is so good, the choir is so much better than we were back in 98, 99. When it was about five people, and we'd stand behind the the, the pulpit, and it was over on Selene's Road at a house, and the piano was a tiny little thing that was slightly out of tune, and everybody just gave their best. You know what? If we have this, but our hearts are far from God, that other worship is better. It doesn't, we're not, it's not about how great it sounds always. We want to be excellent. We want to exalt the Lord. But ultimately, it's about our heart. It's about what are we, are we coming to God with the right heart? Are we, are we really loving him? Are we really obeying him? Because that's so important because the blessed man not only values the word of God, he knows the presence of God. Look at this third verse. He, he says, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. What a great analogy. Picture this is. He's like a tree. This is where I get the, the secure or stable life of the person who's worshiping God. The, the, the picture of the tree is tall, strong, powerful, spreading out its limbs and its leaves, giving the picture of a man who can stand up to any kind of pressure or the winds 
of, uh, you know, you guys had the storm last night. I had it at my house, and I looked in my backyard. I thought, oh, I hope that tree holds. We got a big tree in our backyard, and it did. Our next-door neighbor was not so lucky. He had a limb, got knocked off his tree, and pierced through his, uh, his roof. You know, but, but the tree is a sign of stability. When I lived on Woodbury Road, uh, and, and we used to play football in our backyard. I loved to do that with my friends. And one of the things I was, remember playing, I was the defensive, I was the cornerback, not quarterback, cornerback. So I was defending the receiver. And I, those of you who watch football know that when you do that, you, you face the receiver, and the first two or three steps you take are, are backwards like this. And then you turn, because if you turn too early, they will cut and they will get a, you know, one of those little short passes, and they'll, they'll burn you that way. So I, I was being good, a good defender, and, I, and I, I backed up two or three paces, and, and I turned, and I ran into a tree. And the tree won. I, I don't know how I didn't see it, but I, I, it's just a blind spot, like complete blind spot. I didn't know what had happened until I was on the ground. Like I didn't even, I, it just totally surprised me. that I, 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 And how do you explain that to someone? I ran into a tree, like with your car? No, no, like I ran into a tree at full speed. And, and that, that hurt really bad. It knocked the wind out of me. I was on the ground, you know, couldn't breathe. I'm like, you know, sucking wind over here, trying to get a breath because I ran into a tree. The tree was not that big, but it survived just fine because it's stable. It's heavy. It's tough. And it can take a licking from a little boy. Well, I wasn't that little. I was in high school. I mean, you think about that, that, that we should be solid and stable so that when the, I mean, the tree didn't even notice I hit him. Like he was looking at like, what was that? Uh, you know, that's the picture of your life. When you are, when you are in God, you are stable. You're like a tree, but you're more than that. You're planted by the rivers of water. You're constantly receiving nourishment. And this is the picture of the presence of God. Because if you've ever seen a, a, a picture of the Nile River from space, like if you go to Google Earth and you look at the ancient world, look at Egypt, you can see Egypt like immediately because the Nile River cuts through Egypt, cuts through the, the desert. There's a brown desert area. And then there's a squiggly green line that works its way from the south to the north. And it moves and moves and moves. And then it kind of branches out into a delta, into a fan towards the Mediterranean Ocean. And, and that's the Nile River, and it's green. And at something like 90 to 95% of Egypt's population lives within a mile of the Nile, something like that. Because that water brings life to that desert area. In fact, God uses the picture of a river throughout his scripture to describe his presence and his blessing. And what it does, what the river does is it brings life to dry places. And that's what God's presence does. God's presence brings life to dry areas. God uses that picture throughout. I want to show you a couple examples. He first gives the example of his ability to dry up rivers as his strength. In Isaiah 50, he says, Have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. See, God can dry up rivers, and he can, uh, he can make them uh, come as well. He says in Psalm 63, My soul, this is the psalmist speaking out to God, My soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. There really was, it's not like there, he might have been in a dry land, but he recognizes the connection there. God's like water to us. It, it sustains our life. In fact, in Isaiah 43, Behold, I will do a new thing, now it shall spring forth. Shall I not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will honor me, the jackals, the ostriches, because I get water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. 
to give drink to my people, my chosen. Think of what the rock in the wilderness did by springing forth water out. There the people could drink. The picture throughout the scripture is that God's miracle of bringing life and bringing water is a picture of his presence. I mean, think of the Garden of Eden with the four rivers. And think of the, the New Jerusalem with the river. There is a picture of God's presence, and that's what's happening in Psalm 1. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. The rivers represent the presence and blessing of God. You cannot be a stable tree. You cannot be a stable person unless you're connected to the gospel and to the word of God. How can you, unless you're receiving nourishment, be strong? And because the other thing is not only will you be strong, you will also be fruitful. Notice he says here that they bring forth fruit in his season. In due time, when the time is right, you will blossom and bring forth fruit, all kinds of fruit. Now, perhaps the fruit represents your good works. Maybe it represents your um, other people. You are reproducing after yourself, other Christians being fruitful in that way. Whatever the case, Christ tells us without him we can produce nothing. We are to be producing fruit eventually as God intended you to produce. But notice this other thing, that there will be opposition. And you may say, I don't really see that here, but notice he says, his leaf shall not wither. There will be opposition in our life, but when we're connected to the foundation or the, the source of life, that is God, the, the trees cannot and they will not wither because they are evergreen. They are connected to the water source, the source of life, which is God. In fact, he will experience prosperity in God's will. Whatever he does shall prosper. Kind of summing up this picture, going back to that man, he will be a prospering, solid individual. God will be blessed by God. But there's another picture here, starting in verse, verse 4, if you look with me, the transient life of the wicked person. In stark contrast to the solid, secure life, he says in verse 4, the ungodly are not. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. First, we see here in verse 4, the unblessed ungodly. The unblessed ungodly, he says, they are not so. The ungodly do not have the benefits of being a blessed person. They do not have the benefits of being blessed by God because they are ungodly. They are disconnected from the life source who is God. All the blessings of the righteous man do not apply. Their delight is not in God's word. Their meditation is not on the words of God. Therefore, they cannot expect the blessings of God. God does not bless everybody. The ungodly are unblessed. Secondly, the ungodly are unstable. You see that in verse 4, second part. He says, but instead they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Think of the solidity of a tree, how solid, how rock solid that thing is, how it's not moving, how the wind can blow against it like it did last night and the storms that come through, and you see it bend and you see it sway, but it's not moving. And then the chaff, which is like the, the leaves or the, the, the tumbleweed, which gets blown across the road and gets blown down, and you never know where it's going because it just keeps rolling and rolling, and it has no fruit, it has no foundation. It has no benefit. Like, whoever got, uh, whoever got a shade, any shade from a tumbleweed? I'm going to go sit under the tumbleweed for a minute. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. I'm going to go pick my, my fruit. It's finally come in on my tumbleweed. 
No, we get those benefits from the tree because it's solid, because it's by the river. The thing, the chaff that gets the straw that gets blown around has no benefit to it. It is unstable. It's ungodly. In fact, the the scripture writers often use this picture to describe the ungodly and the wicked. In, In Isaiah 17, the nations will rush like the rushing of many waters. God will rebuke them. They will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like the rolling thing before the whirlwind or the tornado. Therefore, they shall be like the morning cloud, Hosea 13, and like the early dew that passes away. Look at all these transient things, things that are here one minute and gone the next, like chaff blown from the threshing floor, the the excess stuff involved in wheat threshing, and and like smoke from a chimney. It's just going to disappear and dissipate and gone. Keep reading. He says, let them be like chaff before the wind, the angel of the Lord chase them. And then Job 21, they're like straw before the wind, like chaff the storm carries away. They are unstable. They are unblessed. And verse 4 tells us they are discredited. They are discredited ungodly. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners stand in the congregation of the righteous. One day a judgment will come. They were discredited first before God. There's an evaluation coming, and they shall stand before God. And he says they'll have no standing. They shall not stand. They they will not arise and have power and authority in any way. They will be cut down. Their dominion will be brought low, even though they spent their life rejecting God and running away from God. They will be judged by God himself for their life, and their beliefs, their systems, their plans will be completely discredited before God. All that they held up will be burned away, and they will be reduced, and they will be destroyed by the power of the Almighty God and judge. When I was in elementary school... We had a fourth grade project on the history of South Carolina. Maybe you had something similar to that. My wife, when she was in West Virginia, had history of West Virginia class in the fourth grade, and she can cite for you all of the counties in West Virginia. She'll sing them for you if you ask her. I can't even sing all the counties in South Carolina, but I did a project. And I remember doing this project, and we got a talking to by our teacher when we started the project. She said, now listen up. No plagiarizing. What is plagiarizing, you might ask? Well, plagiarizing is when you take someone else's words and you claim them as your own. And you write the paper using someone else's phrases, someone else's words, and you don't give any credit, you don't cite it, and you just pretend like that was your writing, and that is stealing. It's plagiarism. And she told us, if you plagiarize, I will do this. I will give you one chance. I will take your paper, I will highlight where you plagiarized in bright yellow, my bright yellow highlighter, and I will return it to you, and you can rewrite that section. So we had in this school a holding room before school started. And one morning as we're working on our projects, I go into the holding room, sit next to my friend Nathan. And he's sitting there and he has got on his lap a gigantic textbook that I've never seen before. And I said, what you got there? He said, oh, I've got it. I said, what is this? He said, I found in the library, in the middle, in downtown library, a book about the history of South Carolina that isn't in our library here at school. And I can copy it all I want. And the teacher won't have any idea because the book isn't in our library. Now, to a fourth grader, that sounds like a pretty good idea. It never occurred to us that a teacher would be able to distinguish between the writing of a fourth grader and that of a PhD. (laughs) However, he thought he had a good idea. And actually, frankly, I thought it was a pretty good idea too because I thought, man, that's really awesome. But I'm not allowed to plagiarize, so I'm not going to do this. And uh, I'm not patting myself on the back or anything. I just didn't have the book. I bet if I'd have had the book, I probably would have done it too. 
But there we did our project, and the first part of our project we turned in, and he was like, oh, man, she's gonna, he said, she's going to give me a great grade. You, you, you had no idea because, like, this is real book. Like, if I'm writing like this good, man, she has to give me a good grade. And so we were eagerly awaiting our grades to be returned, our papers to be returned, and my teacher returned my paper and had some marks on it. When she returned his paper, it was yellow, the entire paper, every line. She had found every line and had highlighted it with her bright yellow marker, and she handed it to him, and she had that glare. And he sunk into his chair. And he had thought he was going to get away with something. And he realized that in front, and that's hard to hide a bright yellow highlighter paper, the whole thing in front of the whole class. Everybody's watching this bright yellow paper being delivered. And I still remember those to this day of fourth grade. And there she handed it to him. And there he had to redo the whole thing. He thought he had outsmarted her. He thought he had cracked the system. She saw right through his scheme. He was discredited. And make no mistake, the unrighteous in this world think they have outsmarted the system. They think they have outsmarted God. They think they have things figured out. They think they got things going, but they need to recognize that they will be discredited before God in the final judgment. They will not stand before God. Secondly, they will be discredited before men. Because he says, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The sinners are the unrepentant in their rebellion against God. Same word is used in verse 1. The blessed man is the man who separates himself from the lure of the wicked and from their approval. And in the end, the wicked will not have a seat at the table of the righteous. The righteous will discern the wicked. You can be confident in the justice of God. He sees the heart. He knows the righteous from the wicked. They will be discredited before God and before men. How is this possible? How is it? Can we be so sure that everything will be righteously judged in the end? We know things are not always judged righteously now because often the righteous suffer and the wicked get away with things. But we can know this because we have the perfect knowledge of our Lord. We are assured of the perfect knowledge of the Lord in verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the ungodly shall perish. The word for is telling us the reason why we can be confident in everything he's said thus far. We can be confident that these things will happen. It takes faith. It takes faith to trust that God knows what he's talking about here. It takes faith to say, okay, God, I, I'm going to trust you here. I'm going to trust you that you, you know what you're doing. This is, this is acknowledging the, the, because the wicked will be discredited before man and God because God, God knows those who belong to him. That's the first part. God knows those who belong to him. It says the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He's saying God sees and God knows your path. That's the way. God knows your lifestyle. God knows everything about you. He knows your choices. He knows your, your road that you're walking. Psalm 1 began with the righteous man walking, and now we see the road he has walked, and God knows the ones who belong to him. But the word know is more than just being aware of something. In fact, the word Hebrew, the word in Hebrew know is a multifaceted word that has all kinds of dimensions to it, and, and it's much more than knowing about a thing. It's, it's like knowing a thing uh, in its most intimate ways. In fact, this word is used euphemistically in the book of Genesis, when it says that Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. He didn't, it's not like he says, oh, your name's Eve, nice to meet you. That's not what that's talking about. It's talking about the intimacy of marriage and using this word, no. And God knows our path. He's intimately aware 
In fact, one of the best uses of this word that I could find was in Psalm 31, verse 7, where the word know is used to talk about taking care of something. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversity. Do you see how he's using that word there? It's not just that God knows about us. It's that God has taken care of us in our adversity. That's really the meaning, the force behind this word, no. If you look at that word again in verse 6, the Lord takes care of the way of the righteous. The Lord knows. God cares for those who feel unseen and uncared for. I know there are people who feel unseen. You feel invisible. You feel like nobody knows who you are. God knows you. If, you're, if you have been saved, God is, not only knows who you are, he knows you. You're one of his. And in fact, the key is, how are we made righteous? How can we be one of the ones who are righteous, who, who, who belong to God? The Bible tells us we can have peace with God and relationship with God, not based on our performance, but rather based on the fact that we, through faith in Jesus Christ, are adopted into his family. That when we come to God, when we admit our sin before him, we admit our, our need for a Savior, and we come to him in faith, we believe and receive the gift of salvation, the, the shed blood of Christ on the cross. It's not about our performance before him like, like, we're, like we're auditioning for a role as a child of God. No, he takes us warts, scars, and all. And he takes us not based on our actions, not based on our works of righteousness, which we have done, but as the scripture says, according to his mercy, he saves us and he washes us clean and he takes us and makes us new. And so it's not about our performance. We only can live righteously like is here when we already have a relationship with the righteous God. So some of you may not be saved yet. And you may be trying in your own effort to work your way to heaven and think, if I could just do enough good stuff, God would then accept me. That's not how it works, friend. The Bible tells us clearly that we are not saved by our works. If you could be, you would boast. But God says that he knows those who are his. My question to you is, does God know that you belong to him? Do you know if you belong to God? Do you know where you stand here? Because God also will judge those who do not belong to him. The scripture tells us that those who um, have believed in Christ will not be condemned, but whoever has not believed is already condemned. Because the last part of this verse, the very last phrase of the psalm, the way of the ungodly shall perish. What, fi- what finality he uses here, the way of the ungodly, the road will not be prosperous. At the end of the day, God will judge the wicked. We have no doubt about this. The blessed life sets the stage for proper worship. We talk about worship. We must begin with our walk with God. We talk about a life of worship. We're not going to talk about the, the big picture stuff here about church or whatever, about, you know, the, or I should say the, the, the things on the outside. I really want to focus on the inside. Where are you in your heart before God? Are you truly coming to him with a heart of worship? Because a life of worship begins with a right walk with God. It begins with a right relationship with God and a right relationship to the world around us. We are blessed by God when we know God, we're saved, we follow him, we're sanctified. And worship starts with our decision for personal holiness. I challenge all of us, some of us need to get serious about our holiness before God. We need to get serious about a life of worship, and it starts with this, these three things that I mentioned in the first point. Question number one, do you avoid the influence of the wicked? Are you avoiding the influence 
the poisonous influence of the wicked around us. The, the, the words that come all around us from all sides, are you filtering those through the truth of God's word? Do you value the word of God? Are you planting yourself like a tree beside the rivers of water? Do you know the presence of God? Have you experienced the presence of God in your life? Is he the center vision of your life? Or have you allowed other things, whether it be career or person, your own comfort, whatever it might be, politics, to get in the way that drives out God and you make that your center? Friends, we need to make sure God is our vision. If we're going to have a life of worship, it starts on the inside. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you work among us this morning to stir our hearts, to show us where we have failed, but also to give us hope. That through confession, you can renew us and we could be living the blessed life. Lord, I pray you would be our vision. I pray that in this personal psalm that deals with our own hearts, our own thoughts, our, pl- our things that delight us, and things that we cling to, Father, may we delight in your word. Keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for a second. Here in the building, I would ask you, to deal with God for a moment. I have no doubt, as this passage has been so convicting to me this week, I wonder if there's something you need to confess today that has been stamping, standing in the way of having a life, your life, of worship. And you need to say, Lord, please forgive me for being so selfish or being so harsh or being so unloving or being whatever, so carnal, so fleshly, so fearful, so anxious, so depressed, so angry. You've allowed the things of this world to completely crowd out your worship of the Lord. And you need to say, Lord, help me to ponder and think about, meditate you. Or let me think about you in the dull dull times of the day. Let me ponder you and worship you. Let me have a life. Dedicate yourself today. Would you, friend, dedicate your life now to being a life of worship? Say, Lord, I want it to all be about worshiping you. Keeping you at the forefront of my vision. Lord, be with us now as we close. May we have a heart tender to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.